You know, I believe it was 1981 uh, when my friend Doug and I were coming home from a springtime fishing trip. It was a trip that my family often took, the male end of it, and we went up at that time to Crowley Lake, and we would go fishing up there for a week's time. And I wanted to invite Doug along, and he was able to come along with me. And on our way home, we were, we were heading south on Highway 395, and we decided we need to make a right-hand turn in Lone Pine. You're going, what in the world do you want to turn right in Lone Pine for? Well, it goes straight up the mountain to a place called Whitney Portal. All right, Whitney Portal is at the base of Mount Whitney, and I have to make sure that I get this right. Whitney Portal is 8,374 feet above sea level. All right, so it's big, but you look, then you look at Mount Whitney, wow, that's, that's a whole lot bigger than that. Dale, have you, you and Larry, have you climbed that? Okay, they, she said no, they haven't. I, I had assumed that you had. I just, just, okay, all right, all right. Well, anyway, Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in North America. Excuse me, not North America. Well, it might be in North America, but in the continental U.S. And you see that it's over 14,000 feet high. It's 14.5, I believe. And when we watched it, we, we looked around. The air was clear. It was a springtime day, and it was actually warm like it's been now. And the snow was melting, and it was just the water was running everywhere. And it was just, it was a beautiful sight to see. Again, and to the west, you saw Mount Whitney. Excuse me, I'll make sure I go look at this way. West, Mount Whitney, and then to the east, you could see the entire Owens Valley, all right? So you, you're up here. You see the Alabama Hills, and you see Olancho, which is a, and it's a dirt pile, but anyway, it's, it's there. But then off in the distance, some 80 miles off in the distance to the southeast, there's a place where you look at it, you go, okay, so I'm sitting underneath a 14,000-foot mountain, and off there is a place that's almost 250 feet below sea level. What a difference. What a difference. A contrast. I mean, one place that seems, okay, you have to dream this. You're almost on top of the world. You can see everything. It's so beautiful. The weather's always cool there. But in the other place, the weather is brutally hot. It can be. At times, 134 degrees in the shade. I mean, from Mount Whitney, you can seemingly look over everything. From Death Valley, all you can do is look up. Well, our passage today is, is one that we can only look up at. It describes salvation. It's one of the magnum opuses of the Scriptures. It means it's big. And I find it ironic that in our Scripture reading this morning, one of the other magnum opuses was read. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Well, this particular passage in in Ephesians, we find vivid contrasts, almost as much. No, it's more so. It's more than Mount Whitney and Death Valley. It's more than that. We find it's from death to life, death to life, from bondage to freedom, from wrath to love. Ultimately, it is the lowest low to the highest height. The lowest low to the highest height. And another passage in a succession of them in Ephesians that when understood, it will heighten our love for God. It cannot help but heighten our love for God and see how big He is because of what He's done for us through His Son. Would you stand with me as I read from God's Word this morning? It's found in the book of Ephesians, and it begins at chapter 2. The Word of the Lord says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of their flesh, of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading of His Word. Please be seated. What is written in these verses, in these 10 verses, determines what it means to receive salvation. It determines. And indeed, if you look back in in your Scriptures, if you have a paper Bible, I invite you to look back to verse 19. If you have an iPad, click it back. Verse 19 of chapter 1, he wrote, What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked when He raised Christ from the dead? As I've asked a time or two already in this, in our series in Ephesians, I'm going to ask you again. Again, this is what we used to ask our children. We didn't put God into this equation, but we said, how big are you? And the answer would be so big. But I ask you, because it is part of the equation, how big is your God? He's so big. 
But for many people, even though their God is very big, their view of mankind is higher than it should be. Let me repeat that. Our view sometimes is higher of mankind than it should be, especially when it comes to salvation. Let's allow Paul to explain mankind's plight. And we come to the lowest of the low. The lowest of the low. Man is spiritually dead. Let that sink in. Man is spiritually dead, and I mean mankind. Let me explain what I mean by that. I believe that the Bible teaches that man will not and indeed cannot move himself or turn himself with affections towards Christ. Tomatoes, anybody? They will not respond to the call of the gospel unless the Holy Spirit changes their heart by regeneration. Let's read the first part, at least, of verse 1 through the first part of verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, this isn't a precursor to a horror movie. This is not The Walking Dead. This is not about the zombies. This is not talk. It is talking about someone who is spiritually dead, but they're still alive. They're walking the earth. And when he's talking about death, he's talking about spiritual death. I know you remember from Genesis 2 when God told Adam, you can eat every tree, from every tree in the garden, except one. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam told his wife Eve, he even expounded on it, he expanded it, don't even touch it. We know that from chapter 3. Well, what did they do? Satan came, they looked, they saw it was good for the eyes, they wanted it, they took it, they grabbed it, and they ate it. Did they physically die that day? No, they did not. But somehow they died. They spiritually died. Well, how do we know, again, that we're speaking of spiritual death? Because if the person described in in this verse is walking, they're physically alive, living life, but spiritually dead. Now, look really close to the sentence, because this is really important. Notice what isn't said. You were critically ill because of your trespasses and sin. No, it doesn't say that, does it? You were almost dead, or how I would say it. Well, you're kind of dead. No. He chooses his words very carefully to describe mankind's spiritual plight. Dead, meaning lifeless. Lifeless. 
Let me give, give you an illustration. I stole these illustrations from a man whose name is R.C. Sproul. He's very helpful. All right. We have a man who's laying in a hospital bed. He's critical. He's on his deathbed. He cannot respond to anybody in the room. He might hear what's going on, but he's critically, critically ill. He cannot reach for medicine. He cannot reach for water. He's helpless, and without anything, he's going to die. Well, the nurse knows this. The doctor knows this. He even knows this, but he can't do a thing about it. So, the nurse takes medication he or she pours it out into a spoon. It is liquid medication. You're the kind that you cannot stand to take, but anyway, it is, it's there. Pours the medication. He takes the medication, and he takes it and pours it over the lips of the patient. The patient cannot do anything. It's running across his lips, and the only way that the patient can receive this medication is that they open its mouth. This is a false illustration. The patient opens its mouth, and the medicine rolls in, he cooperates. This illustration is what's often used to support what is called semi-Pelagianism. It's a view of salvation. It's, it's halfway right. It's the idea that not, it's, the idea is not that man is good enough to work his way into the kingdom of God by his own merits. Okay, he still needs grace. The grace of God is still necessary according to a semi-Pelagianism, but as it's medicine to the dying man. They need grace, but some type of cooperation must take place. He has to open his mouth. What's the verse say? Can you, can you bring the verse back up for me, Leslie? What's the verse say? Kind of dead? No, no, really, really, almost dead? No, dead, dead. Let me clue you in. I've seen many folks who have passed away. They don't open their mouths once rigor has taken place. Their mouth's either open or it's closed, but it's not moving. They have no part in it. What's keeping with the analogy? What does the dead person really need? Ah, man, I've got a winner right here. She's answered two of my questions. Connie, you're, I mean, you can watch the Super Bowl today. You're awesome. <laughs> All right, so life. They need life. They don't have the power to open their mouth to receive the medication that would heal them. Okay, again, we sang about the great, great love of, about the great ocean this morning, right? How deep the ocean was and how vast it is. A dying man. A dying man. He's, he's without hope, and he goes under the water one time. You know, we've all seen it. He's even putting his finger up. One, two, three, and the only thing that's left is his hand, hand above the water. And he's, again, almost dead, but he, he's somehow hanging on, and God 
being the lifeguard, takes the life preserver, and God being the perfect shot that he is. I'm not mocking that. I mean, he's, he does everything perfectly. So he takes, let's just say he goes all the way from here to Ed in the back, and he goes, bud, excuse me, bud, and he throws the life, life preserver out, and the man's hand who is standing above, boom, it hits the hand, and it stays right there. But for the man to be able to, to live, he has to grab the life preserver and pull himself up. Does a dead, drowning man who's been floating in the water, who's laying there with no life, do they grab a life preserver? No. For them to live, the lifeguard, again, an analogy, I'm not putting God in this position, he has to dive in, grab the drowned man, pull him up, and bring him back to life. Whereas the view of the Scriptures teach us that man is already drowned. They're dead. He's already lifeless under the waves. And the only way that he can be saved is God bringing him back to life. It's the only way. So again, I ask you, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? We are not a part of saving ourselves. We are hopeless and helpless. We cannot even open our mouths to take the medication. Look again to the passage. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked. Now I know you're sane, and I'm agreeing with you. Obviously, we are biologically alive. We have hearts that beat. We have minds that think. We have eyes that see. We have emotions. I hate emotions, but we have emotions. We even have wills that choose what we and they will do. But as a prominent theologian has written, and I quote, the problem is that even though we have the power to choose, we are dead to the things of God. And as a result, have no desire for the things of God. Rather, we follow a different course. We follow it willfully. We follow it freely in the sense of doing what we want to do, but with respect to spiritual things, we are dead. Tomatoes, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's continue in verse 2. This is how you walked, this is how you lived following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, following the way of the world, which means the systems, the values of mankind instead of God's values. This is what we do. 
the world who is under the control of Satan, and although he's been defeated by Christ at the cross, he was defeated there. Satan doesn't surrender without a struggle. He continues to make his powerful influence felt, and he's effectively still at work with the sons of disobedience, meaning those who have not been called by Christ to come to him, those who are not believers. He's still at work. They're still affected. No, make no mistake, he still poses a threat to believers, but we're called steadfastly to what? Resist him. What does the Scriptures tell us? A great promise. Resist the devil and he will flee. We'll see that. That's in 1 Peter, but we'll see our spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you might be thinking this. You know, that, that was an Ephesian thing. That was an Ephesus thing. That was a first century Asia thing. No, it's, it's not just an Ephesian thing. Verse 3, Paul even lumps himself. He said, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Which means this. This is the condition of the entire human race before Christ. Dead. Dead. When speaking of the flesh, this again does not refer to our spiritual, or not our spiritual, but forgive me, our physical bodies, not skin and bones, but the entirety of our fallen, corrupt, self-centered nature. I want this. We still fight this every day, don't we? I want this. I want this. Sam Storms is helpful here when he writes, and I quote, Lust of the flesh should not be restricted to sexual or sensual sins. Desires in and among themselves are not evil, but become such when they seek satisfactions in ways proscribed by God. Proscribed meaning forbidden. He goes on to say, hunger and sex are God-given desires, but can become perverted when they turn to gluttony and lust. This self-indulgent lifestyle consisted of two things, doing the desires of the flesh, and two, doing the desires of the mind, literally the thoughts. In the latter, he has in view intellectual pride, arrogance, ungodly ambition, malicious and bitter thoughts and intents. And because of this, we were nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When I used to read this, I used to say, I'm not a hot-headed person. No, it's not talking about that. It's talking about being under the wrath of God because Though we're all sinners, every single one of us, we are under the wrath of God. Read Romans 1. Meaning God, God's righteous judgment. 
It was who we were. If you want to do an experiment, go to any place on the planet and you'll find this to be true. Humanism taught man is basically good, and it's the environment that takes them down a wrong path. I beg to differ. Go out into our little nursery. Yes, even our RBC nursery. And you will see little children. Well, maybe they were corrupted by their parents. I'm looking at, I'm looking at Ben. But, <laughs> but those kids don't need any help. Mine, mine, mine. You want to play? Here. That's our attitude and nature from the very start. And we are rightfully, deservedly under the wrath of God. That's the lowest of the low. Having no hope, hear me, sinners not because we sin, but sinning because we are sinners. You're born a sinner, spiritually dead. Yet God did not abandon us to our lowest state, our death valley, if you will. Yet He made a way that we could experience the highest height, and that's man made spiritually alive in Christ. We now come face to face with possibly the two most important words of the passage. And you're going, I'm going to try to guess what those are, but don't, don't, don't guess it yet. Leslie, don't put it up yet. I'm, I'm, I want to lead this into it. If you walk away with anything this morning about what I was talking about, I want you to come remember these two words. Because in these two words is the gospel. Even though mankind is spiritually dead in our fallen nature, and even though every one of us deserve righteous wrath to come upon us, we are told these two words, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, which He loved us. Wow, that's a true Valentine idea, isn't it? I love that Valentine's. I love my Valentine too, honey. I don't, don't get mad at me. You should have seen the look she just gave me. She's sitting in the back. I can't see it as much. But God providing a way to return to Him. But God, because of His great love, out of the treasury of His grace, by loving and, and He'd love the undeserving. Verse 5, even when we're, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by Christ, by grace you have been saved. Understand that. By grace you have been saved. 
I could read this over and over and over, and you're probably going to go, you're probably going to do that, right? No, I'm not. I'm going to move on. But I could read this for the rest of the day <laughs> by grace. You've been saved. It's an act of God that gives us life. Sproul, again, gives us a couple of great questions to ask ourselves, and I want to ask you these, but I want you to be quiet. I want you to think about it. He writes, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And then the follow-up question, is it because you're better than others? Is it because you're more intelligent? If those are the reasons, you certainly have something in which to boast about, aren't you? Don't you? I heard the gospel, and I was smart enough, not like my neighbor, to believe that. But the New Testament teaches that you have nothing on which to boast. You were a debtor who couldn't pay their debt. And while you were dead in your sin and in your trespasses, it was God who quickened you from spiritual death. You could do no more. You could no more have done that yourself than Lazarus could have raised himself from the tomb. It is grace by grace you are saved. Picture that. Lazarus is dead. What did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. He didn't believe. He just came forth. Again, the question, what does a dead person need most of all? They need to be made alive. And we are by grace. What is grace? You might write this down so you don't forget it. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, or another one, undeserved benefit. An undeserved benefit. Never, ever should we look at someone, no matter what situation they are, and place ourselves over them and stand in contempt. I would never do that. I'm better than that. No, we're not. It's only by the grace of God that I walk where we walk, where I walk, excuse me. Only by God's grace do I not walk there. Church, here's the question. Why are we redeemed? Why are we redeemed? Certainly not because of being better than another person. I have to look at myself in the mirror. I know I'm not a better person. 
It's definitely not because I've gone to church my entire life. It's not because I was baptized when I was 16. It was not because I grew up in a nursery. I already told you what a a children's nursery is like at a church. It's not because I love and live in America. It's not because I vote Democrat or Republican. Why are we we redeemed? Were we redeemed? Excuse me, I can speak because I'm getting excited. We're redeemed because of grace. Grace alone. God's unmerited favor towards you alone. It's by grace you have been saved. Well, what is the result then? What is the result? He continues at verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. MacArthur explains salvation's result this way, and he writes, and I quote, Salvation has a purpose in regard to us and in regard to God. The most immediate and direct result of salvation is to be raised up with Him and to be seated with Him in the heavenly places. Not only are we dead to sin and alive to righteousness through His resurrection in which we are raised, but we also enjoy His exaltations and share in His preeminent glory. It's a win-win for both. (laughs) Only because of His grace. How is it a win for us? We're no longer enslaved to sin and the resulting spiritual death. We've been set free. Back to the Lazarus analogy, which is not just an analogy, it's a true story. Back to Lazarus. He'd been in the grave for four days. He had started to decompose. His sister even said, I will go old King James on you. His sister, no, Lord, he will stinketh. Look at it. It's in the Bible. which means, I'm going to be graphic, the grave clothes that he was wearing it were, were beginning to ooze. The bodily fluids were coming out. It stunk very badly. But what did Jesus tell the folks when Lazarus came forth? He says, unbind him and let him go. Take the clothes off of him because they no longer hold him. The smell and the stench of death no longer are upon this man. We're spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The spiritual death that once held you no longer applies. God sees you there with Christ. Do we often live that way? I'm sad to say no. But yet we are seated there with Christ. It's a supernatural sphere where God rules. And the way that seated is written in the Greek language, it's already taken place. God sees that as already happening. We're now seen seated with Christ, and we have possession of spiritual life, no longer spiritually dead. And hear me, 
God accomplished it all through Christ. I like to think of it this way, and I quote, I read this earlier this week. Throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpieces of His goodness. And according to Revelation 7, He will receive all the glory because of it. And because repetition is a big part of learning, we're reminded again in verse 8, Paul cannot contain himself. He says it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. I read a story earlier this week that gets to the crux of the matter. I would ask that you listen to it. It comes from 19th century England, but it speaks of any period of time. The story goes, a large prestigious church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the mission churches came to the big city church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, which were located in the slums of the city, were some outstanding cases of conversion. Thieves, burglars, I'll bring it into today's time, drug dealers, prostitutes, and so on. But all knelt side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. Yet, as they knelt there, the judge and the former convict, neither one seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor replied, yes, but I didn't know that you noticed. The two walked along in silence for a few more moments, and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement, yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Then the judge said, but to whom do you refer? And the pastor said, why, to the conversion of the convict. The judge said, but I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The pastor, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself? I, I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied. It was natural for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him and 
when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live like a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, to go to church, to take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive it. I'm a greater miracle of His grace. Perhaps there's something to the judge's insistence upon his life being a greater miracle, but in both cases it was God's free, unearned grace and certainly not works that brought salvation. We have any judges in this room? We have any folks who have been to Sunday school your whole life? Grew up in the church, were baptized here, taught Sunday school. Do you understand that you need grace just like the convict? I know you do. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Then someone might ask, well, what is the gift of God? Is it salvation or is it faith itself? I'll take my glasses off for just a second. That's something that we'd probably argue for, you know, at least a good week at seminary. Because, I mean, I'm not putting light on it. Words do matter and and things do make sense because is it talking about the salvation that God provided? Is that by grace or is it talking about the faith, the, the, even the ability to be able to believe? Is that by the gift of God? Let me answer that question. Is it salvation or faith itself? Yes. Yes. faith, speaking of belief in Christ Himself, speaking of faith that He is God's Son, that He is God incarnate. He is God Himself coming to earth, fully God, fully human, living a perfect life, dying a death, a perfect death for sinners, rising again the third day, proving that was adequate, it was an adequate act that He paid for the penalty of man's sins. That's faith. And trusting in Him, grabbing onto Him and saying, yes, you. You're my only hope and I choose you. Or is it the salvation? Again, yes. If someone is able to brag that they were smart enough to believe... 
Is that not boasting? It's all by grace. Nevertheless, Paul finishes with the truth that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith, not works. We know that in Titus 3.5. But hear me, works always follow true conversion. They always follow it. Now, this, it doesn't need to be confusing. We haven't been saved because of the works that we have done. That's, you can't do anything. You can't do anything to make yourself look better before God, to be able to stand before Him. But we've been saved so we can do good works. The purpose for which we have been chosen is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be servants of God, to be people of obedience who live lives of godliness and righteousness. Well, you might ask, what kind of works? What kind of works am I supposed to… What, what proves it? Well, each person's different, but yet each person is the same. I don't live in the environment that you live in. You don't live in the environment that I live in. But each one doing the works of God, they will include these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God will work that through you. I'll close with a quote from Spurgeon. He said this, he said, we ought to work as if all depended on us, and then we are to trust God knowing that all depends upon Him. We have been saved from the lowest low to now being spiritually alive to in the heavenlies, the highest height. I'll leave you with a question. Are we not blessed? <laughs>